Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. Now, before we start, I have some excellent community news. And frankly, I think it's needed since 2013 so far has been a bit of a doozy. So, avid listener, London meetup veteran, and friend of the show, Hallie, has been battling lymphoma for a significant chunk of this year. And she's just found out that treatment worked, and she's tumor-free. So big congrats to Hallie from the BHP. We're so happy that your humors are finally in balance and all without needing to resort to horse dung, warm lamb's blood, or even dog urine. It's pretty impressive. Now, as for this episode, it was originally gonna be a members only episode, but this material is really interesting and it also ties in nicely to the story that we're telling since it's connected to the spread of Christianity and its impact. So I'm making it a public episode. But members, don't you worry. I've got something pretty fun on the way for you as well. So you might not know this about me, but I used to have long hair. Really long hair. That flowed down my back in ringlets and, if I left conditioner in it, sausage curls. Basically, I had Captain Hook hair. And of course, I had all manner of people taking an interest in my hair. Now generally, if someone took an interest, they were telling me I needed to cut it. Ever since then, I've been fascinated by the attention that we pay to hair, and I started to wonder if the Anglo-Saxons had a similar thing going on in their culture, which led to some research, and ultimately, this episode. I hope you enjoy it. So to start with, what is with hair? Why is it so symbolic? Well, it's easily changeable. It can be cut, styled, dyed, bleached bleached and then dyed. It can be bleached, dyed, and then drenched in Elmer's glue so it can stand up in Liberty Spikes. Just saying. There are all kinds of things you can do with hair. But it's also part of the body. It's not clothing, which is external, but rather it's a part of you. It's something that you've grown. Clothing can simply be discarded, but this is attached to your body, and it's there to stay. Well, until you cut it off, that is. It's also attached to your head, which is a primary source of communication. It frames and sometimes obscures the face. It's intertwined with facial features, which are often the most remembered aspects of a person's appearance. And hair is strongly tied to who we are on a superficial level. All you need to do to see this is to describe someone to a friend. Hey, do you remember Charlotte? You know, the redhead? What I'm getting at here is hair is highly identifying. And hair also transmits some bits of information regarding the person's life. It can communicate age, whether sexual maturity has been reached, for example, if body hair is present. And the way hair is treated can show a person's life stage. For example, many cultures have tied the first cutting of the hair to a rite of passage or a major life event. In some Germanic tribes, there was an important relationship that formed between a boy and the person who first cut his hair. And you only have to look across the channel to the Frankish territories to see how serious that was. The Franks actually had heavy punitive fines for anyone who dared to cut the hair of a long-haired boy without his family's permission, for example. And considering how close the Franks and the English of the South were, particularly in Kent, it's not impossible that some of that behavior made it across the channel. Also, the way that hair is kept, depending on the culture, can indicate social status. The cutting of a monk's hair and the tonsure had a tremendous significance and was connected to leaving behind one's former life. And it wasn't just monks. Pilgrims had specific haircuts, 
and so did penitence. If you were in mourning, it's possible that you'd tear your hair out or you'd shave your head in response. And it wasn't just emotional and religious symbolism that was being communicated. For example, you can look to whether or not the hair was combed or left unkempt, or whether it's long or short, or whether it was tied back or left loose. All of these things can broadcast a whole variety of social meanings depending on the culture. For example, hair left loose on a woman often represented maidenhood, so wives who failed to tie their hair back were often written about in terms of them being inappropriately breaking from their bonds, both metaphorically and also physically. And we also have records of individuals cutting their hair in order to act as a disguise, which allowed them to do things like slip through enemy lines or hide their identity and thereby avoid punishment, such as a knight cutting his hair to look like a squire when escaping battle. So hair can be a big indicator. And actually, for as changeable as hair is, it's often referred to in static terms. If you're part of a particular culture or age, or status, or something like that, your hair was supposed to look in a certain way that was in keeping with all the members of that particular group. There might be a few alterations, you know, things that carry with it your own identity, but in general, there were still overarching rules for each group. And this isn't anything new. The attention to hair as a way of differentiating people has a long and storied past. If you read Tacitus, you'll notice that hairstyles are among some of the first things that he mentions when he describes various ethnic groups. And actually, sometimes communities would use their hair as a way to set themselves apart from their neighbors. For example, the Irish, after having a large migration of Englishmen into their lands, started using hair as a way to distinguish the two communities. Which, of course, the English then used as a way to comment on the, quote, wild Irish, end quote, and how different they were from the, quote, king's loyal subjects, end quote. The Irish at the time were growing their hair long in the back, but also shaved half of their heads. So basically imagine a super intense mullet. And the powers that be tried to keep the styles of the Irish and the English, as well as the communities, from intermixing. We have records that condemned the appearance of Irish hairstyles among the English populations, for example, and they described anyone who adopted them as, quote, degenerate. Now, this might seem like a minor issue, but actually, this mixing of styles and the inability to use hair as a way of identifying ethnic grouping was a significant problem because during that period, like we've seen in many times, including in our own Anglo-Saxon period, your punishment for crimes varied greatly depending on your ethnic identity. So there were Englishmen who were being executed for crimes where, had it been known that they were English, they would have received lesser punishments, but because they looked Irish, they were being executed as Irishmen. So hair is very much tied to identity, and depending on your time and place in history, it could even get you killed. Also, it could be quite political, it could be one hell of a show of defiance. For example, at the time of the Norman invasion, the Anglo-Saxons thought that William's army was almost all priests because they had short hair and were clean-shaven. But that was actually just Norman fashion, which was in opposition to the long-haired and bearded Anglo-Saxon style. Generally, for the Anglo-Saxons, only boys and priests had bare faces. And that clash of culture was no minor thing, because as late as the 1190s, the English were still bearded and long-haired in defiance of the standards brought over by their Norman conquerors. 
That isn't just fashion, that's politics at play. So hairstyles could be pretty serious business. They could also differentiate sex. But the reality is that there's no biological connection between hair length and sex. I know, I'm sure you're shocked. But in general, longer hair has been seen as more appropriate on women than men throughout recorded history, but that's a huge generalization. And when you look at the record, you see that it's really the result of heavy social reinforcement. For example, shortly after the Norman Conquest, there was a craze for long hair among the young men in the ruling classes of Britain. And this caused quite a stir among the prior generation. William Rufus and his court all had long hair, and apparently, pointy shoes. And the shoes thing cracks me up. Anyway, there was something out of a crisis going on here, and one writer said, quote, After the deaths of Gregory VII and William the Conqueror, the decent customs of our forefathers were almost completely swept away, end quote. The concern was that the court was becoming effeminate. And there were even some who were arguing that there needed to be a regime change in order to get rid of this shame. I mean, they're talking about how they want the king to die because his hair is too long and his shoes are too pointy. And spoiler alert, there would be a regime change. But, I mean, come on. Pointy shoes? What has the world come to? And not only did you have the Anglo-Saxons walking around with long hair, but you also had good Norman boys from good families? Ugh, I don't know what's worse. The fact that they look like the dirty Anglo-Saxons or the fact they look like girls. Now, the chances are that what was really happening was an intense and insular competition among the young elites as they tried to outperform each other with new fashions and hairstyles. By having long hair, when short hair was common among the upper classes, they probably communicated courtliness and a sort of inner circle, especially as they were connected to the monarch in many circumstances. Essentially, we're probably seeing the young men of court attempting to attract attention through performative fashion, which is something we see reoccurring all throughout history. And it was not something that the older and non-performative generation appreciated. But that is speculation. We don't really know what was going on in the minds of the long-haired men because all we have are guesses from external writers who had their own concerns regarding the shift in style that didn't necessarily reflect what the men in question were thinking. And given that the writers were all with the church and the stereotype of the monk is pretty much in the opposite of performative fashion, it's not too hard to imagine that there was a little bit of bias going on there. Besides, the writers weren't supposed to be interested in the sorts of attentions that the men at court were probably trying very hard to curry. So, they might not have given us the clearest view of motivations and meaning regarding this hair. But, at the very least, we know that the church was not pleased at all with the changing styles that were occurring at court. For example, the Archbishop of Canterbury refused to bless long-haired boys. And there was even a council at Rouen on what to do regarding this scourge of long-haired hippies that were infesting Western Europe. There was also a council at Westminster that took time to mandate how men should cut their hair. Apparently, the ears and eyes must be visible. And later, in Normandy, the church actually chastised King Henry and his court for having hair that was too long, and then insisted on cutting it on the spot. And even decades later, William of Malmesbury was writing about how dirty, girly, and just plain gross it was that King William Rufus and his court had long hair. 
Basically, by having long hair, he felt they were going against God and nature. And even before the Norman Conquest, which is actually our period, there were members of the church walking around giving impromptu, and it looks like not entirely desired, haircuts to the men who were looking a little too much like Metallica fans in the 1990s. St. Wolfstan, for example, apparently used to travel around with a little knife, sort of like a paring knife, and cut the, quote, wanton locks, end quote, of the long-haired men he encountered. And if anyone refused to be shorn, he chastised them. Quote, You have long hair like women, which is not right for you who are made in the image of God and ought to act with manly strength, end quote. And, quote, those who are ashamed to be what they were born and who copy women in their flowing hair will be no better than women in defending their country against overseas peoples. End quote. There's a lot to unpack there, but basically, it's a truckload of misogyny. So, that's nice. Though, the reality is that Wolfstan was probably trying to make a strong argument by appealing to a common value of patriarchal power between he and the nobles that he was addressing. It doesn't make it any better. Wolfstan is still being a chauvinist. But it's important to note because it shows that the long hairs weren't necessarily more enlightened on women's issues as a result of their locks. Rather, it was probably just fashion, and the church leaders were using commonly held views on gender roles as a bludgeon to motivate them to change. And weirdly, we see a bunch of monastic writers connecting unusual hairstyles with various disasters. Apparently, God was really interested in how people were cutting their hair, and would cause all manner of death and destruction to take place if Unferth had a mullet, for example. It seems like an overreaction to me. But something that I find fascinating is how these members of the clergy approached sexuality. Because if we take them at their word, that's really what they were concerned with. And we can say that because it wasn't all just manipulation of, hey, you look like a girl, so change. But rather, there was a fair amount of just random comments like, oh god, they all look like girls, what's the world coming to? And do you see what's going on there? They didn't like the idea of anyone acting outside of the specific rules that applied to their gender. Not just hair, but we also see the idea of women warriors being denounced as well. Which was actually a relatively new idea. There was a long history of women fighting in Britain, but the church was generally pretty uncomfortable with that. So what we're seeing is that the church writers are tying hairstyles to a whole host of other gender roles that they wanted to see maintained in Britain, and that they feared might be abandoned if long hair became popular among men. So they insisted on cutting the hair as they found it. And I find it fascinating that that was the cure for their fear of a social breakdown. If long hair turns men into women, then cut the hair and they'll be men again. Problem solved. If nothing else, it gives you a view of how black and white their concept of gender was, and how they felt that every single aspect of men and women were completely and irreconcilably different. They were on opposite ends of the spectrum. And it also shows us how strictly gender roles were reinforced with these people, with even minor things like hair and shoes being the cause for seditious murmurings. 
But the point is that going against the grain with your hairstyle was not for the faint of heart. Yet, there were still people who wanted long hair, either in defiance of the Normans, or for fashion, or because it's what their fathers did, and their fathers did, and their fathers before them, or simply because it's kind of awesome to not have to get a haircut every two months. Also, ponytails are kind of low maintenance. Now, the irony of all of this is that despite the heavy attention paid to hair, the rules that apply to it change dramatically depending on the time and place. The social reinforcement and level of control, and the strange obsession with it being tied to gender roles, seems to be fairly common. But the cuts that are being mandated, or denigrated, vary wildly. For example, a bearded priest might be unthinkable and ungodly in the West at exactly the same time as beards were pretty much the order of the day for priests in the East. Some cultures shave their children's hair until they reach maturity, moving in essentially the opposite direction as the Germanic hair-cutting tradition. Or, if you'd sinned, you might be given specific instructions on what to do with your hair when you're penitent. But interestingly, there wasn't a static formal rule for it. Sometimes, you would be told that you needed to crop it. But other times, you'd be told that you needed to let it grow out. It looks like the important part was that whatever you did with it, it was the opposite of what was expected of you. And of course, the context of the haircutting dramatically affected its meaning as well. A monk getting his first tonsure was a very different experience contextually from someone cutting their hair at home, or as a punishment. But the fact of the matter is that we don't see an inherent set of rules regarding hair and what to do with it. Nor do we see a static set of meanings that apply to hairstyles. But rather, it appears that we have a set of changeable rules that were socially enforced, and that the breaking of those rules was treated as a manifestation of opposition to social control. See? It's kind of interesting stuff, right? So right about now, in this period in history, we probably have a ton of long hair and beards running around in Britain. And we also have missionaries who are running around saying, Come on, Raidwald, just let me cut that hair. You look like a hippie. And so I thought that right now would be a really good time to tell you about all this stuff, because really what we're seeing are the beginnings of that concept that there's just this grand canyon that divides men and women, and that there are traits that are strictly male, and there are traits that are strictly female, and there's an odd tendency to think that it's always been that way, that there's always been that divide. But the reality is, is that it shifts around a lot, and for us with our largely Anglo-Saxon heritage for Americans and Brits, we're seeing a lot of the beginnings of that concept right here, right now, with the spread of Christianity, and the attention paid to little things that might seem innocuous at first, but really are having a dramatic impact on the way that genders relate to each other and to society as a whole. So it's pretty fascinating stuff. All right, before I let you go, Ewan the young fan who you have to thank for the popular Scottcast series, did his first book report this week. And what did he pick? Seamus Haney's Beowulf. And I'll give you a taste of his report because it's pretty excellent. So, this is Ewan. Quote, I hated this story. It was pretty darn boring, and it had tons of weird tangents. I really don't care about the story of the smith who made Beowulf's father's chainmail. Plus, 
Very little of the story is actually the story. A huge majority of the story is everyone boasting in mead halls talking about how awesome Beowulf is. We get it. He can swim for nine hours holding his breath underwater in full armor and have a full-scale battle with a huge monster without needing a breath. Dude is amazing, but show us. Don't tell us. It's the first rule of writing. End quote. And if you think I'm cherry-picking, I'm not. This entire report is excellent. Also, he hits all the main points of what you need to know about the poem before mercilessly tearing it to shreds. So, to Ewan's teacher, Miss Hill, when you're grading this report, please keep in mind the sheer size of this undertaking. Mr. Haney was an immensely talented writer, but even so, Beowulf is serious business. It's even serious for college students. So, a few extra points might be warranted. Though, Ewan, you should go easy on Beowulf. It's an epic poem from the Middle Ages. I know there's a lot of telling and not enough showing, but you have to take into account the era and also the delivery style. This was meant to be recited aloud over a fire, probably with a lot of ale and meat on hand. Just saying. In other news, I think there's a potential market for brutally honest book reports on famous works of literature. Anyway, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory, or you can join us on Twitter. Just search for at britishpodcast, and there's the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click get involved, and click forums. And we'll see you over there, you long-haired hippies. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.